Welcome to the podcast for the Northwest Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Atlanta. Our minister is the Reverend Terry Davis, and each week we'll record audio of the sermon and reflections from members of the congregation from the pulpit at our home in the woods. Thank you for joining us. You can visit us in person at 1025 Mount Vernon Highway Northwest in Sandy Springs or on the web at nwuuc.org. February 2nd, 2016, Jay Kiskell reads an excerpt from Go Set a Watchman by Harper Lee. Today's sermon is Starting Over or Staying Put by Reverend Harry Davis. Our reading this morning is an excerpt from the book, Go Set a Watchman, written by Harper Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird. The sun had not yet blistered the sidewalks of Maycomb, but it soon would. Jean Louise parked her car in front of the grocery store and went in. Mr. Fred shook hands with her, said he was glad to see her, drew out a wet Coke from the machine, wiped it on his apron, and gave it to her. This is one good thing about life that never changes, she thought. As long as he lived, as long as she returned, Mr. Fred would be here with his simple welcome. What was that, Alice, Rare Rabbit? It was Mole. Mole, when he returned from some long journey, desperately tired, had found the familiar waiting for him with his simple welcome. I'll rassle up these groceries for you. You can enjoy your Coke, said Mr. Fred. Thank you, sir, said Jean Louise. She glanced at the list and her eyes widened. Auntie's getting more like Cousin Joshua all the time. What does she need with cocktail napkins? Mr. Fred chuckled. I reckon she means party napkins. I've never heard a cocktail passing her lips. You never will either, said Jean Louise. Mr. Fred went about his business and presently called from the back of the store. Hear about Mr. Healy? Uh-huh, said Jean Louise. She was a lawyer's daughter. Didn't know what hit him, said Mr. Fred. Didn't know where he was going to begin with, poor old thing. He drank more jack leg liquor than any human I ever saw. That was his one accomplishment. Didn't he used to play the jug, asked Jean Louise. Sure did, said Mr. Fred. You remember back when they'd have talent nights at the courthouse? He'd always be there blowing that jug. He'd bring it full and drink it a bit to get the tone down. (laughs) Then drink some more until it was real low. Then he'd play his solo, always old Dan Tucker, and always scandalize the ladies, but they never could prove anything. You know, pure shinny doesn't smell very much. How did he live, Jean Louise asked. Pension, I think, said Mr. Fred. He was in the Spanish, to tell you the truth, he was in some war, but I can't remember what it was. Here's your groceries. Thank you, Mr. Fred, said Jean Louise. Good Lord, I've forgotten my money. Can I leave the slip on Atticus's desk? 
He'll be down not too long. Sure, honey, said Mr. Fred. How's your daddy? He's grim today. But he'll be back in the office come the flood, said Jean Louise. Why don't you stay home this time? Mr. Fred asked. She lowered her guard when she saw nothing but incurious good humor in Mr. Fred's face. I will someday, Jean Louise said. You know, I was in the first war, said Mr. Fred. I didn't go overseas, but I saw a lot of this country. I didn't have the itch to get back, so after the war I stayed away for 10 years. But the longer, the longer I stayed away, the more I missed Maycomb. I got to the point where I felt like I had to come back or die. You never, you never get out of your bones, Mr. Fred. Maycomb's just like any other little town. You take a cross section, it's not Jean Louise. You know that, said Mr. Fred. You're right, she nodded. It was not because this was where your life began. It was because this is where people were born and born and born until finally the result was you drinking a coat in Jitney Jungle. Now, she was aware of a sharp apartness, a separation, not from Atticus and Henry merely, all of Maycomb and Maycomb County were leaving her as the hours passed and she automatically blamed herself. She bumped her head getting into the car. I should never become accustomed to these things. Here ends the reading. last Friday morning I was working from home and I was waiting for Snowmageddon 2016 to arrive in Atlanta. Checking my emails I opened one from a fellow Unitarian Universalist minister, the Reverend Jason Lydon, who is based in Boston. Jason is the national director of an organization called Black and Pink. It's an organization that I never heard of before his email arrived. After reading Jason's message, I went online for more information. I learned that Black and Pink is a community of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender and queer prisoners. And they're free world allies. That's the term they use, free world allies. And they support one another. They're deeply concerned about the prison industrial complex and the specific violence that LGBTQ prisoners receive. And they act through advocacy, education, direct service, and organizing. While Jason's email provided few details about black and pink, it did get right to the point about what he wanted from me. We have a trans member recently released in Atlanta who is in need of food assistance, his email said. We got her housing, but at this point she needs food before the food bank opens on Monday. 
I'm wondering if this is something you can help with. And Jason's email continued. She told me she could find a way to meet you somewhere. Her name is Leslie. The email ended with Leslie's cell phone number along with Jason's own contact information. Well, after reading Jason's message, my first thought was to contact him to get more details about black and pink and about Leslie's situation. And so I emailed Jason back with my questions. However, after several hours and no response from Jason, I started getting worried about Leslie, and I started getting worried about Snowmageddon. If the roads did get slick later that evening, I wasn't going to be able to be much help. And so I gave Leslie a call. I introduced myself, and I told her about Jason's email. Oh, yes, Miss Reverend, Leslie exclaimed in a cheerful voice. Anything you can do to help me get some food would be appreciated. I can meet you anywhere you'd like. There was a lot of background noise on her end of the phone, and I wondered if she was at a bus station or something. Where are you? I asked. I'm at the shelter at Peachtree and Pine, Leslie replied. Well, I remembered that place, as I often referred homeless patients to it when I was serving as the chaplain at Emory Hospital downtown. And I also remembered that a Publix grocery store was close by and on the bus line. Can you meet me at Publix, I asked, thinking that I would buy Leslie a food card there. And then I recalled the way the Peachtree Pine Homeless Shelter worked. If you leave, you give up your bed to someone else who's waiting in line for a place to stay. Oh, wait, I said. You'll lose your spot at the shelter, won't you? Honey, I'm not staying at the shelter, Leslie replied with a laugh. I've got my own house. I'm just visiting some friends there. Oh. <laughs> well, I can meet you at the Publix, she continued, but I like shopping at Kroger better. <laughs> And it's close to my house, so I won't have to carry my groceries so far from the bus station. Can you buy me a Kroger card instead? Well, I like shopping at Kroger better, too. And so with that, I got in my car, and I headed first to Kroger and then downtown to Emory Hospital, which is where we ultimately agreed to meet. And it was evening by then, and the rain was easing up, but the temperature was starting to drop. I drove down the city streets I know so well, and I eventually pulled into the hospital driveway off of Peachtree Street. As I got out of my car, Leslie walked out of the lobby to greet me. She was just as she described herself. She was a tall, African-American woman with long, blonde braids that were pinned up on the back of her head. And she was wearing a sweater and blue jeans and a rather thin-looking jeans jacket. Oh, thank you, Miss Reverend, Leslie said when I handed her the Kroger card and told her the amount that was charged on it. She gave me a hug and said, if you ever need any help at your church, please call me. Well, I was touched by her sweetness and her gratitude. Leslie then took off for a Subway sandwich shop a few blocks away where she said she planned to visit some longtime friends before taking the MARTA back home. 
As I turned my car into Peachtree Street, I could see Leslie walking down the sidewalk with long, quick strides. Her purse was clutched under her arm, and the brown plastic Kroger bag with the food cart inside was dangling from her hand. As I watched Leslie walk away, it was clear to me that this was someone who was both starting over in life and she was staying put. As a trans woman recently released from prison, Leslie was beginning a new chapter in her life. And it was apparent that Atlanta and her friends here were important to her and that she would likely be staying in the city for a while. While Leslie may have had no other choice than to start her life over and stay put, I think that wisdom and faith may be at work when we intentionally choose to do the same. To start over and to stay put suggests that I have a hopeful attitude about my present circumstances. It indicates that I'm willing to hang in there and trust the process. And it suggests that I have faith that I'll connect to whatever it is that grounds me as I venture forth into new territory. Not all circumstances, of course, are best dealt with by staying put and adopting a new attitude. Knowing when to stick things out and when to call it quits is often not easy. And yet, I believe Leslie's story demonstrates that when it is time to begin again, we can find hope and courage for the journey by renewing our connections to those people and those places that feel like home and that can help launch us with love and with support. In this morning's reading, author Harper Lee reminds us of how powerful and grounding that feeling of home can be, even when home is imperfect. In her novel, Go Set a Watchman, the little girl scout that we knew from To Kill a Mockingbird has grown up and is now 26-year-old Jean Louise Finch. Jean Louise returns to Maycomb, Alabama from New York City to visit her father Atticus, who is aging and declining in health. During her stay, Jean Louise encounters some ugly and complicated truths about Atticus and the extent of racism in her hometown. And so, while she appreciates Mr. Fred's offer of a Coke and the simple welcome that it represents, she also believes that Maycomb could never be irresistibly in her bones like it is for him. Maycomb's just like any other little town, she tells Mr. Fred, after he tells her his story about longing for home after being away for 10 years. But Jean Louise later acknowledges that Mr. Fred is probably right. She reflects on why Maycomb is special and concludes that it was not because this is where your life began. It was because that this is where people were born and born and born until finally the result was you drinking a Coke in the Jitney jungle. In other words, what makes the feeling of home so powerful isn't that we were born and raised there. Rather, it's recognizing that we're one part of a long chain of human connection.
This long connection is not only powerful, it's inescapable. It carries us to our present moment and it will stay with us until the end. This idea of an inescapable connection is also reflected in the story, The Runaway Bunny. No matter where that little bunny imagined he might go, his mother guaranteed that he could never leave her behind. The mother bunny was steadfast, and the little bunny would never be rid of that. Whether we're starting life over or staying put or doing both, I believe that steadfast connections to whatever grounds us, our friends, our family, familiar places and rituals, those are the things that will keep us whole during times of uncertainty and transition. Leslie's connection to the Peachtree Pine Shelter, her preference for Kroger over Publix, her friends at the all-night Subway sandwich shop, these were the familiar faces and places that she sought as she also took her first steps to begin a new life for herself. What about the rest of us? What keeps us grounded? How can we find ways to stay spiritually and emotionally put as we begin something scary and something new? For me, I'll admit that the things that ground me are rather ordinary, but they're very important. I keep a daily journal, for example. I read from the same two meditation books that I've used for years in my morning meditation practice. I take my dog Miles for walks every day. I meet on Mondays with an interfaith clergy group. And on Sunday evenings, Gail and I curl up on the couch with a blanket and we watch Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> These and other regular simple activities keep me anchored in my life. They make it possible for me to participate in new starting over activities. So what about that? What about that in our personal lives? And what about that for Northwest? Do we know what keeps this congregation grounded and whole? Can we rely on those things as we venture forth and attempt something new? These seem like important questions to consider as the conversation about this congregation's future continues. As many of you know, next Sunday, Northwest will be holding its second all-congregation conversation about what we value about what we believe we uniquely give our members and the wider world. And as many of you know, this discussion was precipitated by an offer Northwest received last fall to buy this property. Yet, rather than be distracted by questions of selling, Northwest leadership has wisely, in my opinion, kept these discussions focused on identifying what drives Northwest's existence today and how the congregation will remain viable for future generations. So why does Northwest need to think about and articulate these things? Why do we need to think about this? Why can't we just go on having worship on Sunday, religious education for our children, and coffee time after the service? Well, my guess is if you've ever observed or been a part of a team or organization that has had no plan 
or no direction, you know that it usually doesn't last long and it usually doesn't end well. Enthusiasm generally wanes, things start to stagnate, and people start to drift. That's because it's the nature of any living, breathing thing, including a vibrant congregation, to change. It's our nature to change. And if it isn't allowed to do so, it will soon become a dying thing. That Northwest is having these conversations about its future, I believe, is a very good thing. It says that you care not just about the present, but about what you leave behind. It means that you acknowledge that the world is changing and that you want Northwest to remain relevant and necessary as it does. And so it seems that Northwest must start over in some ways and it must stay put. If Northwest remains welcoming to newcomers and continues to work for justice in the wider world, the congregation will change. It will change in presence and it will change in personality. And if it remains committed to the spirit of community, then I'm hopeful that it will move through these changes with thoughtfulness, with courage, and with an ever-renewing sense of purpose. And that is a great thing. Sign me up for that. Well, I started my sermon today telling you about Leslie, and I've ended it inviting you to think about the future of this place. My takeaway message to you in both of these instances is this. Don't let go of each other. Hang on. Hang on to these friends that you've made, this community, these things that give you a sense of well-being. And ask yourself, ask yourself and each other hard questions about what troubles you. And don't let the discomfort that comes with contemplating change cause you to run away. We are a part of one long chain of connection. May we remember that and support one another as we start over and stay put in our lives and as a faith community. May it be so.